Three, two, one. We are officially on. Welcome to another episode of the True Leisure Podcast. A big welcome to everyone who is watching. I hope you all are having a wonderful day so far. Today we're going to be talking about something that might seem a bit scary to all the logistical thinkers out there because it's a subject where you sort of have to let your mind loose a bit in order to really explore it. Philosophy. It's a subject that's a bit misunderstood as well. Whenever you say the word philosophy, people imagine mind-bending discussions on extremely abstract topics such as what is the meaning of life or the everlasting and infinite darkness that consumes the cosmos. But philosophy can in fact be very practical. Society today is plagued with mental health issues, insecurities, and many other problems. Today we're having a discussion on practical philosophy and what solutions can be found to these issues within the realm of the subject. Because many problems in society have to do with mindset and perspective, studying the various schools of thought such as nihilism and existentialism gives us a glimpse into how these problems might occur and what their solutions could possibly be. Let's get started. I think the first school of thought that if we examine, we can talk about what it means to have perspective is probably nihilism, and that's uh, quite arguably the most famous school when we talk about philosophy. Almost every single college student who studies philosophy for the first time comes out speaking quotes of Friedrich Nietzsche. Nihilism is essentially just the mindset of pessimism. This rejection of moral principles, this idea that life is meaningless, life has no meaning. And we see, we can see small glimpses of this mindset when in our everyday lives, for example, I'll share a little story of mine. I was scrolling through social media when I found a video about how small the earth is compared to the universe and it was one of those videos where you have the earth and it scrolls outward and outward more and it just keeps showing how small the earth in fact actually is and most people would assume that to be this idea that in the grand scheme of things because our existence is so small that our existence essentially has no meaning at all if we look at it from a secular point of view. But my mindset is a bit different because I believe that life, you create meaning in life. And that meaning doesn't depend on how small or how big we are in the grand scheme of things. Now, my colleague Alex also did research on Nietzsche and nihilism. And I just wanted to ask you, Alex, what are your thoughts on nihilism and what sort of problems do you think can occur in society through this mindset? Because I've talked to various people and a lot of them do agree that nihilism is essentially a quite harmful mindset to have. Right. So before getting into that, I think it might be good to talk about the context that Nietzsche came up with the concept of nihilism. Mm-hmm. So, it the idea kind of comes from his observation 
of the fall of like the monolithic Christian faith at the time mm-hmm. when he was he is um, living in Germany. Right. So, in his eyes, Germany was entering this nihilistic period because mm-hmm. the moral code set up by Christianity was being less and less enforced this idea of good versus evil and being selfless and being altruistic mm-hmm. and Nietzsche had this belief that the natural way of I guess the natural more moral way that we were supposed to live is in his book called the will to power where he talks about um, good versus bad and good is high class and powerful and bad is lower class plebeian and like there's an absence of power mm-hmm. and he also talks about how one of his or Christianity, like the uh, moral code that's set up by it is, mm-hmm. I forgot the term exactly, but it's kind of like a slavery, slavery morality where the low, which were people that were usually more religious, mm-hmm. had a way of making their life seem meaningful. So, segueing off of that, some problems that could come up from nihilism. So Nietzsche describes it as basically the, the final crisis or an intermediate crisis before the fall of humanity, mm-hmm. where everything's super nihilistic. So stuff, we can see some stuff like that today depression like non i guess non-genetic depression like not clinical yeah mm-hmm. feeling of self-doubt and narcissism maybe mm-hmm. and stuff like how it feels, at least to me, it feels like people are a lot more pessimistic mm-hmm. towards, especially American politics. Mm-hmm. Right. And then stuff, stuff that might stem off of nihilism could also be people are so afraid of this feeling that nothing matters. People can go to religious extremism. Right. And other types of extremism, like political and racial. Mm-hmm. So, that's my idea of problems that can come up from nihilism. If you guys right. have any more to add, then feel free. It's I just a want bit. To go for it. It's a bit interesting because when we talk about Nietzsche and Nietzsche's like the one philosopher who's most associated with nihilism, but he wasn't a supporter of nihilism. 
right? He right. he saw it as the downfall of human humankind. And it's interesting because one of Nietzsche's most famous quotes that's attributed to him of uh, God is dead, the death of God, Nietzsche, the man who killed God, wasn't necessarily him remarking as a secular man who wanted to destroy the foundations of religion, but rather it was when he referred to God, he was referring to the absolute truth, the standard, the foundation that Christianity had, because in a world full of relativist ethics and morals, when you take something like religion and especially Christianity, you put with, you associate it with an absolute truth. And that absolute truth is the idea of God. So if we are to take nihilism, nihilism, if you, if you say that nothing in the world has meaning, then you are essentially devaluating the highest truths that exist in in our world, such as reason and uh, the truth. So, if when when Nietzsche said God is dead, he said that Christianity, in and of itself, was the reason why there was the disappearance of this absolute value of honesty and truth. So the the Christian morality of there being an absolute value of truth was the reason that God is dead, which is how I understood it. And it's interesting to me because a lot of people might agree that in our world, in order to function properly as a society, we have to have some objective truths. And those usually take place in the form of laws and, you know, legal charters that are enforced by governments. But if you're to follow the nihilistic mindset and you say that nothing has meaning, not only are you destroying in my in my opinion, not only are you destroying these absolute truths, but you're also destroying the foundation of what it means to function as a society. Because in my opinion, there have to be certain absolute truths that exists that exist that have to be set by humans. Uh, G, you you were about to say something. Oh, I was just, I wanted to point out that for the longest time, until I had to, until I looked up some of the topics that we're discussing for this podcast, mm-hmm. I believed that existentialism and nihilism were synonyms. So could you explain quickly just the difference between those two philosophies? Yeah, so nihilism is just, like I said, this um, philosophy of pessimism, where nothing uh, has meaning. Nothing, like I said before, with um, it's not just that life doesn't have meaning, but it's also more so that this the truths, the absolute truths that bound society together have no meaning. And existentialism is a philosophy 
that was uh, that's most commonly associated with Jean-Paul Sartre, and it's this uh, idea of thinking where human existence is given meaning by the person. Who is the person in this case? The person, I mean, it's it's uh, probably the individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like each I of us, be the individual. So each of us give ourselves our own meaning. I mean, it's it's existentialism is it's a very broad topic to cover because existentialism basic meaning is just. It just means that it has to do with the idea of existing. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. and a more, more so, not just existing, but the experience of the human ed- individual. Right. So, if whenever, you're, yeah, whenever I, I was gonna say, whenever I hear that, like people are going through a uh, quote existential crisis. Right. It's usually attributed to like, why are they existing? Right. Mm-hmm. But I didn't. I didn't think back then that existentialism was more of a positive light. Like, oh, it's you. The fact that you are existing is enough reason for you to exist, right? And um, Sartre also said something similar because Sartre argued like one of his main arguments on existentialism is that the most important idea of existing for individuals is that they are precisely that they're individuals they are independent conscious human beings that is the most important aspect of what it means to exist it's not uh the labels it's not the roles it's not stereotypes that you might see that that is given to you by society so a lot of times when you when you say that someone is having an existential crisis a lot of the times what it means is that they're just rethinking what it means to be themselves or because most people define themselves by their labels by their uh stereotypes that are given to them by society but if you say if you strip away all that and say that you are just one conscious human being that exists, that lives in this world. That is what uh, Sartre called their true essence. Mm. Because human beings, they use their own consciousness and they create their own values and they add their own meaning to their life. Okay. Alex, you were saying something? Yeah, so I have some more stuff for existentialism to build off what Akash said. Mm -hmm. So that thing with people living with their labels, Mm -hmm. Sartre had kind of, I don't know if he said it exactly, but he considered that living in bad faith, where you're living and accepting things as one way, and you're not considering the other possibilities. Mm -hmm. So... That was one thing. As individuals, there's we he argues that we kind of have an a responsibility 
to explore the myriad of possibilities that are open to us. Mm -hmm. So an example would be of somebody living in bad faith would be a waiter who has Mm -hmm. been a waiter for so long that they can't imagine themselves as anything other than a waiter. They're kind of absorbed by the title. Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. It's basically just applying labels to people um, that's defined. People are, their definitions are given to them by how they act. It's, go ahead. I feel like that's just the way that we are kind of brought up. Like we have all of these labels, like even from a kid, you were classified like, oh, this one is a boy and this one is a girl. This one is a preteen. This one is an adult, right? We have Mm -hmm. all of these, society just has all of these labels that people can classify themselves with. But I feel like having those and basing your entire like identity and existence off of them right is unhealthy like right i remember i was talking to uh my cousin and i was saying that you know there's all these people that define themselves solely by their labels and that's their entire identity and then she asked me okay then what are you and I said, oh, I'm a video game playing metalhead uh, programmer. Mm-hmm. And then she just said, well, aren't you just giving yourself occupational labels? And so I do think it's it's beneficial to take a step back and just try to remove all of them and just think, okay, as a person, without any societal classifications what am i right and that's actually that's a that directly ties into a quote that sauter said in his work existentialism is a humanism he said uh quote unquote man first of all exists encounters himself surges up in the world and then defines himself afterwards So Mm -hmm. the very first thing is that you exist. The definition comes after. And the, when, what Alex said about bad faith and how people are given labels uh, due to their occupation or how they might act. I, one of the reasons why that could also be considered bad faith is because well, the, the more positive aspect to it being bad faith is that a person can choose their own labels. They can change themselves and become whoever they want to be. They don't have to depend solely on the labels that are given to them by others. I think that's true to an extent, for sure. It's just like, it, I think it goes a little deeper because... Now you're asking, are you the one that determines who you are, like, objectively? Or is it your actions and other people's perception of you that creates that? And I think that's, like, an entire, like, question on its own that's separate from, like, just the philosophical idea. So I had something to say about um, 
what G was talking about, labels. And just the whole not being defined by them. So labels aren't inherently a bad thing, right? Right. Our brains are programmed to look for patterns. And we have schemas so we can classify things so that they're more easily understood. So having labels isn't necessarily bad. It's just a way that our brains can process the world more easily, right? Mm -hmm. But when we, I guess the problem arises is when you take this label that is meant to make it so that your life is more easily digestible and make it, that's your whole like worldview. And this is who I must be, even though something deep inside you is telling you something you shouldn't be this. It's suffering to keep doing this. Mm-hmm. You I mean, should be something else. And right. then you just keep going because you're scared of this like societal backlash. Mm-hmm. I think even, even if you aren't scared of societal backlash and even if you aren't, and uh, I, you're, the, what you said is true, but I mean, but I'm saying, even if that wasn't true, those conditions, even then, relying, given like what I said before about the true essence of what it means to be a human being, the true essence shouldn't be that the true essence shouldn't be the label, right? So it's first of all, your true essence is that you're a conscious individual. After that is what comes the 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 labels the roles the stereotypes etc so to solely define yeah to solely define your true essence with your labels i feel it can lead to problems in society because people tend to get this uh this wired robotic thinking where we start treating individuals less like individuals and more like more by their group identity yeah so philosophically just something i was thinking about i'm sure there's a lot of different theories of what a person is when Mm -hmm. you strip away all those labels Mm -hmm. like how would you define yourself without using any labels? A human being. I mean, deeper than that. Is there anything deeper than that? I mean, the only thing deeper you can go is the mind, the consciousness. Hmm. Because essentially, if you think about it, we are all just... Uh, brains inside of a skeleton, right? Right. Yeah, but like supposedly. Yeah, but like that's not. I don't think that's what G means. I think he means like beyond the literal definition of what we are. Is like, what are we? Like that's a whole question of individuality, isn't it? Yeah. Like, it's incredibly difficult to define yourself without using any sort of categorical, like, organization. It's right. hard. 
I mean, there are people out there just like you. So what separates you from everyone else? I mean, I don't think we necessarily have to be separated from everyone else. Like, wh- why? Why do you want to be separated from everyone else? Or why? Why? Why do you want to be unique? Why is this such a? Because I hear this all the time. You know, uh, everybody is unique, and you know, suppose obviously everybody is unique. You know, we all look different. We all. Uh, think different to some extent but there's nothing wrong with defining yourself with your labels or your roles given to you it's just that once you start taking people and stripping away their individuality in favor of their group identity that's where i think the problem lies because mm-hmm. i feel like the main Whenever you hear individuality, right, mm-hmm. it's kind of you you think individual as in I am unique to everyone else, but there is going to there are over eight billion people on this planet. There is bound to be someone who is very similar to you. Right, no and, yeah. or someone will share at least one label with you. Mm-hmm. So the thing is, like, the in- individuality just has that connotation of, oh, I need to be separate from everyone else while still maintaining the group identity, right? Right. I mean, it, uh, for to me, it's never... The idea of being an individual never really struck me as trying to be separate from everyone else, but rather... Um, being an individual within a group because to because what happens when you start taking because like you said uh, with 8 billion people on this planet there's bound to be someone with similar thinking but if you take people and you start defining them by solely their group identity to me that con- that constitutes a problem because the group identity becomes an umbrella for everyone who might not all share the same view exactly. Yeah. And you can't have, you know, little tiny umbrellas for every single person or uh, all the sub views within uh, a group identity. Hmm. So let's but, back up. Okay, go for it. No, you go for it. I was just gonna ah, kill the silence. I was gonna, tr- I was gonna look to transition. Yeah, me too. A little bit. Go for okay. it. So uh, let's go back to the root of the issue. So one of the things is obviously individuality, at least in American culture, is a very, very important thing. Like, mm-hmm. if we look at Eastern culture. They're more on um, Akasha's line of thinking, where it's like, you're part of a group, and you have to represent that group, almost like like a team activity, right? Like, um, right. I, I assume for Akash and G here, they can kind of understand this a little more, 
where it's like when you do something wrong, your parents will say, hey, you're going to make us look bad. Don't make like the whole don't look bad for like Indians as a whole. Right. Something like mm-hmm. that. And right. I don't think they have the same issue of like, who am I? Because it's very obvious to them. Right. So I think another question we want, want to ask is, should we stay along this line of American individuality? Or would it be healthier to try swapping to that more Eastern perspective? I think, okay, so I'm going to tackle your, uh, I, I know you didn't really ask this, but as a question, but I think I'd still tackle the, the statement of, um, when you're when you're religious, right? It's it becomes much easier to define individuality because then you're it, it's clear cut. You know, your 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 soul, right? Everybody has a unique soul, so that's you. That's that's your individual. But if we're talking secular terms, that's where some of the problems come in on what, what it means to be an individual. And would when you say that should are you talking about should American society adopt some of the more Eastern traits? More so, do you think, who do you think it would benefit more? Like what kind of individual? Because the way I, at least the way I see it, if someone doesn't have like a lot of friends to support them and they fall into Mm -hmm. a strong depression, and they just mm-hmm. can't they can't get stuff done they can't pull themselves up by their bootstraps i think it's more healthy to say look for some direction and go to like a church and just mm-hmm. uh, assuming they're along like the christian line and try to become part of that community sort of mm-hmm. and like base their identity around that as opposed to just suffering alone but that's a very extreme example, but I, I've seen it happen. Mm-hmm. So I'm asking more, for what individual do you think is better? And if the whole American society, why? Okay, so I think it depends. I don't think there's a certain individual that it's better for because, it all again, it all depends on where you sort of grew up in. Yeah. Because the thing about something like Indian society... The reason there's two reasons why, well, there's probably more, but the two reasons that I can sort of think of is why Indian society places a lot of emphasis on the group identity is because, especially when you immigrate to a place like the United States, you're living amongst a heterogeneous society where there's many different groups and many different cultures living in one place so it sort of becomes up to you to put your best foot forward and represent what it what your culture means because in a heterogeneous society like america if you don't create your group identity as something respectable then essentially it ruins it for pretty much everyone else yeah, I, I and, can see that. And because it's within a society that's heterogeneous, you all there's also competition 
between different cultures and different yeah groups and indian society is one of those societies that places societal expectations a lot higher and societal respect a lot higher than most cultures around the world uh, like most cultures in in europe especially you don't you don't see in indian culture you will see people care more about what society thinks of them than you will see people in europe doing that mm-hmm. so when you combine those two you combine a sense of competition with culture and you com- combine societal expectations placed on a higher platform you get a more rigid group identity where you have to where every individual puts their best foot forward and i think for the individuals that do place societal expectation above their own respect or their own expectations their own ideology for them that might be the best way best place to live but for someone mm-hmm. who thinks of them as a free-spirited person, you know, like somebody who a uh, quote-unquote doesn't care what other people think of them. Yeah. To them a more heterogeneous society like America is probably the better place to live. Okay. Yeah, and I, I mean I would... both Yeah, I mean I was, I was just, just saying say uh, Yeah, I mean I was just saying that I both of them have their pros and cons. You know, I don't think one is inherently better than the other one. Um, because uh, every, I mean, every society and every ideal, ideology within a society has its pros and cons. But I think it's definitely up to the individual, again, to decide whether they want to place their individual individuality over their group identity or they want to place their group identity over their individuality. Mm-hmm. I like that. Uh, okay, so I have something to add I hope, to that. Actually. Sorry, I, I hope that answered your question. By the way, yeah, no, I, 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 I sort of went, I sort of went on a rant there, but no, you're good. They're good. Don't worry. Uh, okay. Go ahead, Alex. So, I think one thing to consider is I, know, I like thinking about it biologically. Mm-hmm. So, humans, we, we agree that humans are social creatures. Yeah, yeah, I would say that. Through evolutionary design, at least, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, we have functions in place that require like, other people. Like, we don't usually, at least in tribes, we never really lived alone unless it was we were exiled or something and we were very against that idea Mm. so being just an individual would not necessarily it probably would not be very good for your health is what i'm trying to say so this idea of individuality and you have to like fulfill the American dream and like get to the top is from 
it's mainly Western philosophy and the cultural um, grouping. You should care about your family and your cultural identity more is the Eastern philosophy. Yeah. But yeah. I think the the best of both worlds is applicable. Like you shouldn't just live in your cultural identity because each individual has specific needs. Right. But then if you live just individually, then this social requirement that humans have isn't fulfilled. Mm -hmm. So we need groups that we can identify with. See, I mean, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. ahead. No, no, you're good. I mean, if we, um, when I said individuality, I just want to clarify, I didn't mean like literally living alone. Right. But I think in terms of, like I said, there's pros and cons, but I think in terms of living within a group identity, when you start to place the group identity above your own, it, I'm trying to think it's, I mean, obviously there's pros and cons with it. And I can give you an example, like, um, um, like, uh, female feticide. Uh, do you guys know what that is? It was a, it's a huge problem in India. I've never heard of it. It's where they get rid of the females. Yeah. Yeah. When they're, it was, yeah, it was just infanticide. Like when they would get, when someone would give birth to a girl, they would just, kill them off because later on they're going to be way too expensive right and that sort of wrote yeah that sort of rose from a societal issue as well because we started to place the value of what it means to be born as a girl on things like how much it was going to cost to get them married when they grow up and that it, it all sort of combines into a web of social issues like dowry and, you know, a whole bunch of other stuff. But I think that sort of is where like, that's a pretty extreme example, but I think that's where going living strictly by your group identity becomes a sort of harmful notion because it's, it becomes, because it's um it becomes a harmful notion because the whole idea of killing girls leads back into the group identity of society because they place girls at a lower value than boys yeah i think china has the same thing too like um when they had do they i don't know i don't think they still have the one child policy but when like that's no, first started no. yeah when it first started Oh, you're only having guys, and if you have girls, he's probably adopted. Like, uh, a decent mm-hmm. amount of families would just like toss the girls out because, like, they they're not necessarily like the head of the family, at least in that society. Mm-hmm. So it really, like, hurt to just have that, especially when that's your only kid. Um. Right. So, yeah. Anyway, let's uh let's try to get back on topic here. So, yeah. Yeah. I think we talked about a lot of the the big issues, but a lot of this, a lot of the philosophies like nihilism tend to be more theoretical. What are, Mm -hmm. 
the the main thing you think about when you think practical philosophy i would say is ethics because mm-hmm. usually the way people think about ethics are the bridge between how we think of stuff and how we how we judge things and what we should do so right uh one big question with ethics is relativism versus absolutism relativism being that morals are relative and there is no absolute correct thing and absolutism is there is an absolute right but it doesn't necessarily mean we know what that is so what do you guys think about mm-hmm. that um it's sort of difficult to say because it all depends on what sort of society that you live in mm-hmm. because for most people most types of ethics are relative you know it depends on where you grew up what is sort of right in that society where you live and something that's right in one society might not necessarily be right in another one and i think the biggest example i think i can give is uh eating beef you know eating beef is accepted literally in the west everywhere but it's not accepted in india because that's the culture there where uh, you know, for them, the cow is a sacred, sacred symbol. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's, there are no, I mean, there are some absolute ethics, like don't kill other people. Right. But I think other than that, like other kinds of other types of ethics, like what value do we have over our citizens? What value do we have over our materials? I feel like that's all really relative and it's not just a dichotomy between East and West, but it's also, it can also be sectional, like something Mm -hmm. that you could value in Los Angeles, Hollywood wouldn't be as big of an big of a priority or a debate in like rural Texas. Mm -hmm. How about you, Alex? just out of state <laughs> sorry texas no no shame no shame but yeah alex what is your opinion on i'm guessing you're also so, relative i had a question for g so what do you think creates that absolute ethical principle like the you you said the no killing thing i feel like part of it is attributed to globalization that as we have all come become super connected with each other, that it's we've kind of bounced off these ideas that a lot of people can agree with, right? And it's it's also because law, like it's illegal to kill anyone in I hope every nation. Okay. So before so you continue that thought, it, uh, I'd yeah. just like to point out that for the most part, laws are not, uh, ethics are not based off laws. It's only laws are based off ethics. So yeah, laws are based off ethics, but I'm saying that uh, external factors such as laws can shape ethics. Like if you are raised under a certain regime, then your ethics will be created revolving around that regime. Yeah. Usually. Yeah. Okay. And so Probably. over time, our 
our ethics evolve, essentially. Hmm. Alex, what's your take on uh, relativism versus absolutism? Um, I think it's important to... It's hard for me to talk about absolutism without mentioning theology, right? But I think that there are a bunch of things like how our nervous system kind of imprints on people. So we have this connection. Yeah. And a bunch of other things that lead to altruism that we can observe in other species. And I don't know, that's things like honoring your parents, which we can observe in great apes and not killing each other and having fair trade kind of like, even though it's a bartering system Mm -hmm. because there's a benefit for it's mutual benefit. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that that is what those kinds of things are what I would consider absolute ethical principles because they're kind of hard coded. Yeah. But then the rest, things like, like the Akash, the, the example that Akash mentioned was really good, like the eating beef and not eating beef is yeah. a very good relative ethical example. Uh, I mean, another one is um, that also is coincidentally in India, but this I, the, there's this idea of um, marriage being a license to rape is a pretty widespread idea in India. But if you say, say that to say that to someone here, then they won't the, to them that's wrong. And, you know, to us, that's wrong too. Um, but it, it's pretty mind boggling when you watch videos of, you know, people getting questioned on the street and they say that marital rape isn't considered rape. And for the longest time, I believe that was also the law as well. I, I could be wrong, but I believe that was the law up until a certain point in India. So it just, um, so I do agree that laws can shape, uh, ethics can shape laws. Because if you have a society that says something that not not collectively, but like they just sort of silently say that okay this is what we consider ethical mm-hmm. then laws will be created to protect that ethics because presumably in every society their ethical and moral values are their self-respect sort of yeah uh so from what it sounds like most of you guys are all relativists and the reason i say that is because um relativism and absolutism can't live hand in hand for the most part like i'm um, absolutist when... though. you're absolutist yeah i mean uh, absolutist just means i'm absolutist about some and relativist about others yeah, that so would, things that would like... be pure relativist yeah i mean i'm 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 like uh less I'm more relativist on murder, like 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 because because in some certain situations where uh, such as self defense it becomes okay, 
So that that's yeah. like a, that's that's like a moral issue as well. Uh, you see people. When is it okay to kill someone? Is it okay to kill someone in self defense? And you know, most people would say yeah. And then there's also people who would say no that it's never okay to kill anyone. So let me try to clear this up. That was actually an example I was going to use. So um, the idea is that all ethics are either relative or all active. All ethics are absolute. So when you use that example, that the statement wouldn't be, it is sometimes okay to kill people. Like it's relatively based off the situation. The right. idea would be you, it is absolutely true that in mm -hmm. self-defense, I can kill someone. Yeah. So that, that very specific example is more like concrete but the idea of absolutism versus relativism is more like the cow thing, right? So yeah. in human ethics, like in people at all, is it morally okay to do that? Like, do you deserve to be punished for eating beef would be the question. And all because a culture punishes it mm -hmm. wouldn't mean that that is an absolute in that culture. It would mean it's a subjective difference. At least from my understanding. I mean, there's also um, cow vigilantes in India. I think that's the term for them, where people uh, the people have been attacked for selling beef in their shops mm -hmm. because by uh, mobs. Because to them, that's a very unethical thing. And and you know, it's that just sort of um, again that sort of goes deeper into the argument of what is relative because to us killing someone over beef is not it seems quite extreme even if um yeah. even if your culture doesn't permit it but to, to them it's 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 okay mm -hmm. I, mean, I wouldn't say it's okay to the society i would say it's okay for the mob the mob views it as okay not not society so like, and that's sort of um, what is, um, yeah. What is it like? Very like, go for Strong it. subjective view. Like, um, I, I would say I'm absolutist, and like I, I definitely come off like that at least mm -hmm. so far. But like, my example would be, so, ten years ago, it was okay to, uh, call people the f word um referring to like a gay person but now it's not okay mm -hmm. so the question is was it okay for them to say it then yes or no if you say yes it was okay you you're probably a relativist because you say in that society that was more appropriate though now we understand it's not bad but an absolutist would say that was a bad thing, whether or not the person knew. Okay, I would... I'm kind of conflicted on that because one part of me wants to say it's according to the society, but another part of me also, like, the, to me, I, mo I mostly feel that if something in time, at one point in time, is not as okay, and then 
later on is it it's considered okay then i would say that it wasn't ever okay like if if something is okay first and then it's not okay then i would say it's not okay it wasn't ever okay but yeah that's more like an absolutist sentiment yeah so for but but for me again that's absolutist but that for me that also only applies to very certain situations like uh like slavery you know most yeah i would hope that most people would say that slavery has always been bad even though society back then did not deem it as such but there's also um i'm not i'm not going to get into this but i know there's a there's a bit of um a hullabaloo about free speech and what is considered free speech or not. And that's a very conflicting issue. And that's why I said, I'm not going to get into that, but that's sort of an area where I would be uh relativist on because to me, speech is a concept. The idea of free speech is a concept that is absolute. So it can't be relativist at one point in time or another. Hmm. like um i mean uh without getting too much into it i'll just give you an example like uh, a lot of people have been saying that hate speech should be banned right yeah and i'm saying if to me free speech includes hate speech because in order to have free speech you have to include speech that offends you Yeah. And for sure. So and but that being said, if at one point in time in the future it is determined that hate speech is not free speech and it's not okay and it's determined it is deemed illegal, I would still say that it w- it still constitutes as free speech. I'm not saying it's okay, but I would say it's it would still be considered a free it's still speech. Like yeah, so so that sort of it sort of reverses the scenario, right? So if if one thing was uh considered something at one point and now it's not, which definition do you put on it? Do you put it as under as not free speech or do you put it as free speech? So that and that depends on your idea of what free speech is and whether that's absolute because free speech can be relative to some people, they can be absolute to others. Yeah, the way I see it is that you can define something as an umbrella term, but it doesn't mean that everything under that term is okay or, or ethical. Yeah. Okay is usually like more of a societal thing. Yeah, um, yeah. Like, because you can say that threatening someone's life is free speech, but it's technically illegal. Right. So, yeah, it's. There, there is a little bit of nuance there. Yeah, I mean, the thing about free speech is that it's pretty clear in uh, legal charters that what isn't free speech and things like shouting fire in a movie theater, like, that's not free speech. Yeah. yeah. So there's, it's, it's sort of like there's more what isn't, there's more what is free speech than what isn't. So there's like very little nuances to what is considered free speech. All right, interesting. So let, let's move on a little bit. Mm-hmm. So we talked about 
relativism, absolutism. And usually when we talk about ethics, that's the first thing. The second thing is testing ethics mm -hmm. using the very famous trolley problem. <laughs> my favorite. Oh, man. So we'll play the scenario for the people who don't know. It, there is a runaround, runaway trolley going down a track. It's going to hit five people. But you are there and you can switch the lever so that instead of hitting five people, it hits only one. Do you pull the lever? What do you guys think? I think this is a very, very, very relative ethical problem. Because, yeah, yeah, it is. Because, I mean... I mean, realistically, no one is ever going to be in that scenario. But the I think the whole problem is set up in such a way because they don't give you any details about these people, right? Yeah, because uh, like it, the base yeah, I mean, if a person had to choose between uh, running the train over five, you know, criminals versus one innocent person, then it wouldn't people wouldn't be as conflicted on it. Mm -hmm. But because they they set it up in such a way, you assume that the five people and that one person are relatively the same people. Yeah. So one of it, the things about this problem is that yeah, you can add on details to bring about more of the ethical conflicts, right? Like like you said, uh, one of the derivatives of this is that it's one innocent person and five criminals, right? Mm -hmm. But another derivative that I've heard of is it's five strangers and one loved one. Right. And there's so many other derivatives, like they change factors based on where the lever is or uh, what's the train's path or how many trains are there or all sorts of things. And it's in that sense, it's kind of become a meme. But <laughs> yeah. it's just... This problem is just so versatile and it tells you a lot about what we think about ethically. And at the same time, it tells you almost nothing because right. it's so unrealistic. Right. Yeah. But like um, an example of where it would be used practically is like, what would a nihilist say about the trouble problem? Well, a nihilist, a nihilist would draw a circle so the train spins around because nothing is, nothing has meaning. But I think I mean, the way I heard it is the, the they just won't do anything because it doesn't matter what happens anyway. Mm -hmm. Like they don't care. Or it's not that they don't care; it's that it doesn't matter. Right. But, so, uh, what would I you mean, say? Oh, like, in, okay, yeah. keep going. I mean, a rationalist would say that it's uh, considering that all six people are strangers, that it makes more sense. It's more logical to save five people than to save one because uh, saving five people has a higher benefit to society. Yeah, no, that's about right. How about you guys just like with the base trolley problem, what would you do? If you were, if you were there, there was one derivative of 
the trolley problem that I felt to be the most realistic. Mm-hmm. And it is... So the train is headed for the five people, right? Right. You pull the lever, and it runs over the one person. And the other five people will vilify you for murder. Mm -hmm. Because you have taken responsibility by pulling the lever. Yeah. If you did not pull the lever... Not all, you would not have taken responsibility in the eyes of the other person. Yeah. And those five people would be dead, so it doesn't matter what they think. Yeah. So you think practically... It's practically. Better, it's better not to pull it. Like, if you are solely, like... I, I think it's, it's a soliptic point of view that if you're only acting out of self-interest for yourself, that you wouldn't pull it. Mm-hmm. If there were six strangers, of course. Yeah. If it's yeah. somebody that you know, that's the one person. Or if it's, like, five people that you... Or you know all of them. Mm-hmm. Then then it would be a little bit more complicated. But I just think that that would be the most realistic. Because we always think about what we would do. We never think about what the survivors of the trolley would do, right? Yeah. 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 Alex, what do you think? So, thinking, if I'm thinking of myself as somebody that would, I guess, like, assuming strangers, right? Mm -hmm. The moral thing that I would think of doing was, would be to have it redirected, right? But then, that brings up, I was watching the the minefield with uh, the Vsauce trolley problem, where they basically set up the experiment and had people decide whether or not to pull the lever pretty realistically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like they had them think that they were doing a different experiment and then they had them come in because it was super hot outside and it was air conditioned in this like switch control room. And then the person that was working there went out to take a phone call or something. Oh, okay. And the majority of the people didn't press the lever and whether or not it was because of nerves or a lot of it's you're incredibly nervous about both decisions and you have to make it fast so Mm -hmm. under the stress most of the people didn't flick the lever only like two out of eight people flicked the lever Mm-hmm. and which, they had a which, bunch of like defense mechanisms like well if there's five people then what if one person looks behind them then they're good mm-hmm. but if the one person doesn't look behind them and that's less likely then they're screwed yeah or yeah. like a bunch of other e- explanations to justify their decision mm-hmm. so were there any out of the six that didn't pull it not because of stress but because they thought it out or was it all just attributed to just poor reaction timing or just under pressure i think that all of them were a lot more comfortable with not hitting the lever of the six mm-hmm. which okay. makes sense you know this reminds but me of uh 
like super stressed out by it. Yeah. Mm. And like a bunch of people got in position to pull the lever but didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Ooh, okay. You know, this mm. r- reminds me of this um there's this TV show out on Netflix called The 100. And uh, I don't know if any of you guys have watched it. It's basically this um, how humans live in space because the Earth was destroyed by... wasn't destroyed, but the Earth... People got into this huge war and nuclear weapons were involved. And because of the fallout, the Earth was uninhabitable for many, many years. So And so humans have to go up to space. And at one point, when humans come down from space, they find out that the, um, they find out that there's going to be some uh, apocalyptic event, this disaster that's going to be taking place on Earth due to uh, the nuclear fallout, even though the Earth is inhabitable again. And they find a bunker, an underground bunker, where that can hold people but it can only hold a hundred of their people so the dilemma is how do you decide which 100 so and there they had like two ways to to do it and like one way was uh you either do a lottery and randomly pick people or you go by logic and you pick the people that are most likely to take human civilization forward. Like the scientists and the doctors and the children and stuff like that. So and the moral dilemma there is, okay, rationally, logically, there are people more capable of taking human civilization further. But does that mean that they deserve to live more than the people who aren't as capable? Yeah, that's a that's a hard pill to swallow. So it's like, who would be a greater asset, and how do you decide? Right. So like, a firefighter versus a scientist, right? I'm... A firefighter has the value of, you know, dealing, or not not a firefighter, more like just any like, uh, laborer, right? Mm-hmm. A laborer versus a scientist. Scientists, obviously, they can put forward um, their ideas and they can progress the human civilization. Mm-hmm. But then it's like, who's going to build it, right? Right. Yeah. So that's you can't really put a value on a person based on things like education or athletic ability and things like that. It's it's really an interesting dilemma. But a lot of times we do, though. Even in real life, we do put values on people based on their work or their education. And this is like um, this is a bit of a tangent, but I'll just briefly mention this. But you know how people they'll point to people like janitors or grocery store workers and say, uh, you know, study or else you're you'll be like them or turn out like them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So that that's essentially placing the person's self-worth on what on what kind of work they do. Even though at the same time we tend to have this mindset of no work is big or small, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean cuz like ethically you know everybody has a right to be treated equally. But if you think about it logically or rationally, that's sort of um, like obviously a janitor gets paid much, much, much less than a doctor, right? Mm-hmm. Because of, you know, what it, the qualifications that it takes to become a doctor versus a janitor. But you can't argue that a janitor is like being a janitor is less valuable to society than being a doctor. Yeah. So, like, it has reason behind it. But, like, right. I still think it's almost unfair the way they are treated regardless. Right, right. I feel like part of it can be attributed to what can be replaced by advanced enough technology, right? I remember back in the day, calculator, being a calculator was a legitimate job title. Mm-hmm. But now we've invented the TI-84 and they've that job has just become obsolete and there's always more i remember there was this one theorist that said that we should be replacing lower skilled jobs with technology so that those lowered people can get education and then work in higher fields right and that would contribute to pushing humanity forward like if every janitor got an education and became a scientist or a doctor or a businessman or something like that. Just every theoretically. And then all the gen janitorial jobs are taken by robots. Mm-hmm. Then would that not increase the pool of value as a human race? Because we have more capable people uh, at the frontier pioneering our next big invention. I just that's, don't think that's how I think of it. I don't think it's practical though. Cuz right now if you think of like a good school like it's it's hard to get into like a higher university. And, of course, like, there's always this is all theoretical. Obviously there's the whole there's the whole like institutionalization, right? About mm-hmm. how schools are getting increasingly difficult and increasingly expensive to get into mm-hmm. and the whole thing about how some areas have not their schools don't have as much funding as opposed to other schools. So those yeah. people don't really get the opportunity to move on to higher education. So it's, there's flaws in our current systems, but theoretically, right. It's not practical, but theoretically that that would be the way I would think about it. But yeah, the only I, issue with that is that if you, in any society, if you take the hierarchy and you sort of move it above what it is at currently, that doesn't mean the hierarchy changes. It just means that it sort of just moved up. Because if you consider uh, people like janitors and their jobs are being taken by robots and they uh, progress to higher jobs, that doesn't mean that the lowest end of, the, of jobs in the market is going to disappear. 
right? Because there's still going to be a hierarchy of what is considered the lowest job. Yeah. I feel like the lowest job, like if janitors are replaced by robots, the -hmm. next lowest job would be people, maintenance workers that are making sure those robots are functioning. Right. Something like that. I think the, the, my main point is that values of jobs are, they're not just arbitrarily decided. Like nobody just woke up and decided that doctors is a more valuable job than being janitor. Right. Because why is, uh, you know, a dishwasher in a restaurant or a janitor considered a lower end job is because compared to other jobs, that's a lower end job. So it's paid much less. If we were to just take that baseline and just move it higher then nothing changes because you're still comparing it to higher jobs because you just keep moving up the ladder. But the the number Mm -hmm. of steps remains the same. Makes sense. Yeah. Meanwhile, we got celebrities and athletes at the top just because. (laughs) I mean, mean, that's because of people too. I mean, their job is like, I wouldn't say important, but impactful is definitely the word. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, I would say they do more socially than, like, any other, like, individual job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Man, we've really steered away from, I feel like we've steered away from our philosophical discussion. I mean, I feel like this is ethical, too, because the, the, there's a, that, that's a huge ethical question, is that why are essential workers paid less than celebrities? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you like, that, that's the entire idea of Marxism. Why are teachers paid less yeah. than celebrities? And I'm not going to lie, I don't want to get into Marxism and neo-Marxist philosophy right now. Yeah, let's get into more of how we can implement philosophical ideas Yeah, yeah. Um, to, to kind oh. of justify or yeah. um, solve some of our problems. Like earlier we were talking about nihilism, right? Yeah how so somebody that has that worldview somebody that thinks oh like a, a depressed person that thinks oh everything is just it's doesn't matter in the end we have no value mm-hmm. everything is just going to become ashes and dust right mm-hmm. what are some like philosophical viewpoints that um or just phil- philosoph- philosophies that would we could use to kind of spread uh I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, but you, you guys understand what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think I can start it off. So um, a, the precursor for all these philosophical ideas is there. a lot of them are very good in theory, but be careful about how you put them in practice. Because from what I looked at, at least, I don't think that any of them um, done to the full extent in a would work practically like i would say the best example is stoicism where stoicism is the idea that if you cannot change your surroundings then change the way you think about them it's more about the internal mindset and how you think about things so if you're really bothered by like your position at work or you have like a phobia of bugs like you have to work on your internal mindset to s- turn it around and say, you know, it might not be the best, but I enjoy it. it. Like, 
the work is satisfying enough. I mm -hmm. get fulfilled. I, I'm happy. And yeah. that's something only you can do. Yeah. But what you have to be careful is something like stoicism is a very, uh, I would say introverted ideal where it's not exactly that you live in your own world, but it's similar and it's a very independent mindset, which is why it's good. But you have to remember that all because you don't let things affect you too much doesn't mean you can't care for people. And I've right. seen it gone on the two extremes. Alex, uh, you wanted to... Other... Yeah, Alex, go ahead. Um... No, I don't really... If you still had more stuff to talk about stoicism, then keep going. No, that was basically it. That okay. was that. So, something to add on would be a way to think about it is accepting the moment as it presents itself and not being controlled by desire or pleasure or fear, like fear of suffering. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, it would you'd also have to treat people justly and fairly. Mm -hmm. And I think the common theme with at least these Hellenistic Greek philosophies like Stoicism, mm -hmm. Pyrrhonism, Epicureanism, and a couple others is... Um, this idea of reaching eudaimonia, which is this highest good that humans can achieve. And one example would be, an example of eudaimonia would be, imagine an acorn being planted, right? Mm -hmm. It could be that the acorn is just eaten by a squirrel or something. And that wouldn't have it been, it would not have reached its eudaimonia in that point. Yeah. in that timeline i guess but in the timeline where it grows up to be this magnificent giant oak tree that's when it reaches eudaimonia mm -hmm. so it's the highest potential that it could achieve for itself yeah uh so stoicism and a bunch of other greek philosophies have different methods of reaching this the highest potential mm-hmm which we've described the stoic one mm -hmm. and you know i guess more on stoicism there's like where do you put health wealth and pleasure into that situation like do you just forgo them entirely do you look for them or is it neither and it is agreed on that they aren't morally required or forbidden, but they're things like that are sort of materials mm -hmm. for virtue to act upon. In yeah. other words, you need them in order to do what you need to do to reach eudaimonia. 
mm-hmm. like your highest potential. Like if you don't have money, you can't do anything just because of how society is built up. Mm-hmm. There was one thing I was reading into stoicism and it said that you don't have any control of anything except for your thoughts and actions. And I feel like that's not true. Like, obviously you do have some control over your health, right? Like you can make the conscious decision to eat better, to work, work out, to sleep better. And the only time where I can say that health is out of your control is if an accident occurs. Like if you get into a car crash or, um, you trip and like snap your leg or things like things like that, that you can't foresee. Those aren't things that are in your control, but you can maintain the mindset that once you have recovered from that, you can go back to continuing to um, better yourself. I remember listening to this one story about this, this man who was in the army and he was he got badly injured while serving and when he returned back and tried to reintegrate into civilization he gained weight because he was like oh i miss um, my leg is hurt really badly i sh- i can't work out and then he just became so out of control and it wasn't until he had a heart attack that he turned himself around again. And I, I, he took the control basically. And I think that's what stoicism is about taking control. Yeah. You can continue with your thought, Alex. So when you said, or when you're claiming that um, there are things other than your thoughts and actions that you can control, one argument against like what you said would be like health is something that you can influence with your actions right right (laughs) but you can't always be sure about it like maybe one day you get cancer right yeah so stoicism asserts that you can do whatever is within your power but if something is you know unreasonable for you to have assumed then you shouldn't create extra stress on yourself hmm. like you yeah can, i think i, I mentioned that with the, the example with the car crash right right it's just after you've recovered then you can continue to use your actions to influence your health right mm-hmm. okay kosh go ahead Okay, so, I mean, to me, I, I had something to say about the concept of eudaimonia. Because, like you said, eudaimonia just means uh, prosperity or human uh, highest human potential, right? Yeah. So, in that sense, you could say that eudaimonia financially, like like you said, if you don't have money, you can't reach eudaimonia. Because society is set up that money is required for prosperity, right? Right. But to me, from because because uh, me to me, my definition of eudaimonia is the flourishing of the mind, 
and prosperity of the mind. So as long as, and I've said this before to you guys, um, that how pain and fear, these things are inevitable, but to suffer by them is optional. And there's a quote by Marcus Aurelius that also says that pretty much the same thing is, if you are distressed by anything external, the pain is not due to the thing itself, but due to your estimate of it. And this you have the power to revoke at any time. So yeah. to me, that is because stoicism is going against your own self-destructive thoughts. And in the past, I've struggled with stress due to I, I don't really stress. There's only one major thing that I really stressed about, and that's been uh, school and grades and stuff. But recently I've made the, the conscious decision to not become stressed by that and just live life in such a way where I have no regrets as to what I do. So I, I've stopped worrying about all that. Mm -hmm. And to me, stoicism is about, like, like I said, stoicism about, is about going against destructive thoughts. So for me, that was a very destruct, destructive thought I had that I went against. And my, recently I've just been reading a lot about mindset and perspective and it's just really given me perspective as to what it means to live and what uh what it means what it means to really live because a lot of people say live life to the fullest but and a lot of people take that to mean that you know you have to seek out adrenaline rushes or thrills and stuff like that but to me that just means that you live your life in such a way where you have a sense of fulfillment and a sense of satisfaction all the time and to me, that all comes down to mindset. You can be satisfied with whatever you have at any point in your life. Whether you're poor, whether you're rich, that, that doesn't matter. Your, your happiness is determined by you and you only, and not due to any external factors. So, and that, that to me is what it means to reach eudaimonia. What that point where you are your own you are the master of your own mind you know you determine what it means to be happy and you no longer rely on external factors to make you happy or sad because it's not that they don't matter but the your mindset is in such a way where to you having those external happiness having the external happiness is not the catalyst to you being internally happy well said and uh, stoicism isn't it's not the only philosophy out there that can that you should adopt that could you know give you a better world view of if you are experiencing nihilism and depression so obviously, like, there's so many other philosophies out there, my favorite being skepticism, but we are quite deep into this. So is there anything else that uh, you guys would like to say? Uh, I would like to respectfully say that I very much do not like skepticism, but besides that. Okay. Okay. So the last thing is, like, yeah, of course, I... This 
episode wasn't meant to be like, you know, we have a solution. We're just bringing these things into conversation so that we can think about what might work for us individually later on. So having these concepts in mind is good for later development. And, you know, there's plenty of stuff that we didn't talk about. There's a, like hundreds of schools of philosophy that could have something that resonate with people more deeply than stoicism or the other things that we've talked about. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So on I that say, note, actually, yeah, go ahead. I'm just going to close us off here. And I have a couple quotes from Nietzsche that I thought that were really at least motivating to me because he was a person that grew up with a lot of physical illness and a lot of emotional problems and stuff like that. There is as much wisdom in pain as there is in pleasure. That it hurts is no argument against it but its essence i must first go deep down deeper than i've ever descended deeper into pain than i have ever descended down into its blackest flood thus my destiny wants it whence come the highest mountains i asked once then i learned that they came out of the sea the evidence is written in their rocks and the walls of their peaks it is out of the deepest depth that the highest must come to its height So thank you all so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. They should all be in the description. And we hope you have a wonderful day.